Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we talk to the brightest minds about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, Contributing Editor at Prospect, and today I'm delighted to welcome into the pod Britain's most celebrated post-war historian, Peter Hennessy, who was I was interviewing for the current issue of the magazine. As Boris Johnson's opponents charge him with misleading the House of Commons, some are suggesting that the British Constitution itself now requires that the Prime Minister has to go. But does it really? Hennessy, whose new book A Duty of Care covers Britain before and after Covid, is the ideal person to provide a bit of perspective on that question. We were speaking before some of the latest twists of Partygate, but there's always another turn. And the whole point of our conversation was to take a longer view. Now, Peter is famous for his so-called good chap theory of government. He's a bit of a patriot and he's got a deep affection for the shambling and improvised way in which Britain has always been run. And he trusts that way of running things in the title of one of his books to muddle through in the end. But I started by asking him... Is the unwritten, or technically uncodified, constitution up to the job when it comes to reining in a character like Boris Johnson? I'm still a a non-written constitution man. I still think that the peculiar bundle of conventions, laws, uh, and um, codes and all the rest of it uh, can, can do wonders because it's got great strength in its diversity. But the trouble there is we have a prime minister who is absolutely tone deaf on all the niceties of this. Mm. But he hasn't got a single feel for either proper behaviour, proper procedure, single nerve end, nerve end uh, for that or for um, due process or for the, for the restraint that you need, the good chap theory of government being paramount to our system. He has got no sense of the restraints you need to make this work. And if a bit of it annoys him and it gets in his way, he tries to cast it aside, mm. like proroguing Parliament, like the Standards Committee saying, we don't just not accept what you've said about our friend Owen Patterson. We want you to be entirely rejigged next week as well. Now, this shows a tone deafness mm. on the Constitution as it was, the, un- the largely unwritten one, that peculiar bundle of law, statutes, conventions and customs, the, the bonding material of which was the good chap theory. 
So we've got that tension as well. So I'm st I'm I'm a, I'm a, an unwritten constitution man in the process, maybe of rethinking all that for myself. I don't know. It's rather a grand task, and it sounds terribly vain as if it matters what I think. But all my instincts have always been that muddling through served us rather well. I mean, with aberrations, of course, and that I have not a deep aversion to writing more down. But I've got a, got quite a deep aversion to writing everything down because I don't think you can. Yeah. Because the human side of making these institutions work and these arrangements work is paramount. And also it would tie us up for decades. I mean, just think if we had a constitutional convention with a brief to write a British constitution. I mean, we couldn't start off with, we hold these truths to be self-evident, could we? Because none of us hold any truths to be self-evident these days. <laughs> um, and it would be politicised in a way that would be, um, the pace would be made, I fear, if we had a constitutional convention like that with the, the, the preoccupations of now, the Scottish question above all. And also we're in a terribly ratty state with each other. There's not one bit of the working constitution or even one bit of the country that seems to think that this is the place to be. We're in a desirable steady state. So having gone from a country where, into which I was born and you were too, mm. uh, where the unwritten constitution seemed to fit us as comfortably as an old cardigan, everybody's terribly cross and anxious at the moment. And rather resentful of the other bits, the other people wherever they live. So, I mean, it, it's it's impossible to read your book without, and you know, this phrase you associated with the, the the good theory, good chap theory of government, without feeling that you know you think we've got a bit of a bad chap in charge at the moment. Um, not just the prorogation, but you know, making the 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 chance for consensus blown in the spring of. 20, uh, 2020. And there's an irony, I wonder if there's an irony, that the best chap of recent years uh, that comes out of your book is is not um, Boris Johnson or the previous Etonian chap who gambled the kingdom and nattered about the Queen, but Theresa May, you seem to think, was a, a fairly solid chap. I think she had decent instincts. I didn't agree, well, of course, individually, one's politics. Not that I'm a party man. There were certain policies I didn't care for. But I think, I think the alarm bells rang in Theresa May's case in the right places about proper procedure. And I think she was treated appallingly badly by her colleagues. I think she's, she has the, that, she has, she's, she's in the tradition of decency of most British prime ministers when it comes to not, abusing the powers of the state and with, with or the power of the prime ministership come to that though you could argue that she was never given the chance to be an overmighty prime minister and, and with Cameron did, did you feel he was if not as shameless as Boris Johnson too much of a chancer for a sound chap it's very interesting David Cameron because he's the only prime minister so far we've ever had, who's read the literature on the Prime Minister and Cabinet Government and all that, because he was taught by Vernon Bogdan and our friend Vernon at Brasenose. And the first time I met Cameron was, I think he was two years away from winning his election, maybe a little bit less. And one evening I'm in the big lobby of the House of Commons waiting to come and see somebody, and he walks past with an aide and glances at me, then he stops and comes back. He says, I've read several of your books. I hope to be a chapter in one of them one day. And I said, I'm sure you will be. Can we talk about it? He said, yes, that would be nice. And then he moved off. So that was the first time I met him, which was a reference, which was interesting to books and the, the Prime Minister book, obviously, I think he was referring to. 
when he was prime minister, I, th I think I saw him a couple of times to talk to him about how he saw the institution of premiership, having read the books and now being at the epicentre of it. It was very interesting. Really interesting stuff, Peter. But let's just come back to the present and the only urgent question, really, which is, can Boris Johnson survive? It has the feel of one of those moments when whatever Johnson touches goes wrong. It's rather like Macmillan, who was a very class act, actually, and a very, very substantial mm. prime minister in a way Johnson could never hope to be, although he obviously thinks he is. There was a moment after the night, from the night of the long knives onwards in 62, almost to the end of his premiership, where he was unabated. D Douglas Hurd actually was interesting. I think it, I don't think it was in his memoirs. I think he said in an interview that there comes a moment in the life of the government where whatever you do, it doesn't work. They don't want you anymore. And in Johnson's case, it seems to have come very quickly. Mm. And of course, you've got the bookends of Shropshire North. I mean, when... Johnson has got time to look back in whatever condition he'll be in by then on his premiership. Oswestry will be written on his heart, very likely. Mm, mm, the yeah. unlikely, unlikeliness of that. So the bookend of the of the Oswestry of, of being vacated, as it were, by Owen Patterson's resignation, and then the huge blow for Johnson there. Of course, he might recover. He's recovered before in terms of political opinion, polling, polling opinion. But I don't think so. I have a feeling that he's gone through a one-way valve now. Yeah. And that it was the autumn that did for him. And will, will have done for him. Will have done for him eventually because it will lead to other things. That whatever he does now, he can't come back. It's partly because he's not believed. I think he I think he is now, is he not in the polls? You'd have to check this or I'd have to check it. The least believed prime minister of the post-war years. Let's just focus in a bit on COVID. I mean, obviously, one thing that's that's done for him a bit is particularly with the, the party story. It's one of these small things, like some of the details in the MPs' expenses that kind of ends up overshadowing the, the, the bigger things because it speaks to the bigger point about, you know, him not wanting to be bound in by the ordinary rules that everyone else and perhaps every other government's had to live by. Um, and it's become a cliche, um, which could be doesn't mean it's wrong that it's a cliche, but it was a cliche quite early on in the crisis to say, well, it's not going to go back to the same as it was before, uh, which people said in all kinds of different ways. You know, they said it about air travel, they said it about working from the office, and we're both yeah. talking to each other remotely, so that bit looks right. Um, but your book kind of takes a punt on the idea that where attitudes to um, the duty of care are concerned, uh, that we're not going to go back to before any more than we did after the new dispensation after Dunkirk. Um, and I mean, do, do you think that's really true? I mean, Matthew Paris wrote a, a, a typically kind of provocative and elegant column saying, everyone's saying it's not gonna go back, why not? So why not, Peter Hennessy? Of course, it may well go back. The, the steady state, the, 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 how do I put it, the automatic pilots of British politics take a lot of shaking. That's why it's so hard to break the, the electoral mould. And this is not comparable to a total war either. I mean, in, in its magnitude, it's the nearest thing we've come to an intense collective experience since the war, but it's not comparable in the sense of magnitude and profundity. But I suppose my argument, Tom, is that if we suddenly found ourselves with a, a mix of politicians um, who wanted to run with the notion of a revived consensus, 
these are the five themes which I put in the book around which they could cluster because we're pretty well agreed on all of them and they all need doing and they all need attention. In many ways, they're all related to each other. And I'm not one of those who thinks that politicians are utterly self-serving, always, everywhere, and short-sighted to boot. Their time when they can influence something, particularly in terms of being in a cabinet or on the edge of being in a cabinet, is usually very short. There are some exceptions like Rag Butler or Jack Straw, but they're very rare. Do they really want their time when they got close to having some sway in their country's fortunes to be dissipated in recrimination as usual? Do they really want to go back to the... It will never go back quite as vile as it was at the worst of the Brexit debates, but do they want that to be the weather system in which they operate when they look back? They have, a, they, have a, they have a sense of purpose and decency too, nearly all of them. They also have children and grandchildren. And my pitch, which some, remake, some do regard me as being truly a Pollyanna about, is that there is an opportunity for it to be better. Mm. We don't have to go back to recrimination as usual if we don't want to. And if you have a consensual approach to these five themes to make sure you get it right as far as you can before you draft the statute, the chances of it sticking and holding are much greater. For example, social care. Johnson did pledge at one point that, that it would be a cross-party thing and then did it without consulting them. And immediately it, it fell into the, the trap which previous attempts to tackle social care had fallen into, of the death tax variety. You know, the problem mm. it was fashioned into a weapon of political exchange rather and an instrument of social advance and shared purpose. So that makes me more pessimistic than I otherwise would be. But when I look at the other... On, on, I mean, interestingly, he has done something on care that people have been saying needed doing for a long time. But weirdly, he's done, he's tackled, you've got eight problems you list with social care and his reforms seem to tackle problems one and two, means testing and catastrophic costs which are the two problems that the experts you quote are saying are the ones that have kind of receded in salience during the COVID crisis, whereas, you know, hmm. the quality of care and the condition of the workforce and all these other things have gone up. So what, what did you make when you saw Johnson do that? Did you think, oh, good, at least someone's doing something? Or did you think he's tackling the wrong part of the problem? Well, it would have been better if he'd carried the opposition parties with him on all of it. I mean, obviously. But the other problem which is there is the, the raw arithmetic of the money. There's a danger is social care is going to get the fag end of the money once the immediate needs of the NHS are taken care of. And for social care to work, it not only had to be consensual and produced in a consensual fashion, it had to have the wherewithal of not ring fencing quite, but as good as ring fencing for the foreseeable future if it's going to take and it's going to need a lot of funding up front, pretty, quite a lot of funding up front in a very tough public expenditure climate. So the trouble is, by not thinking things through, this is the great besetting fault of the, this, this, this government, is that it doesn't use the apparatus of the Whitehall properly to think things through and test things out. It rushes at it. It's, um, Johnson, very, that's very much, I mean, Dominic Cummings is very convincing, I think, in his descriptions of the way Johnson operates because other people say the same things um, who are in a position to know. 
that he doesn't that they, that they, they, they haven't got the habit of thinking things through. You could say, well, lots of governments have, have failed on that front too. But to do things in a rush. And also Johnson has this great character weakness of not being able to restrain himself in finding a form of words or a cunning plan or a wheeze to get him through tomorrow, today and next week, but not beyond. Mm-hmm. These, all of these problems, the five big themes that I talk about in the book, require heavy duty investment of intellectual R&D, Whitehall planning and wide consultation as well as consensus to do. And he can't operate like that. He reverts to his automatic pilot almost instantly, which is to be dazzled with language, to biff and abuse the opposition, and not even, not even to, to make use of his gifts to carry his own party. So the, the tragedy of Johnson, if it is a tragedy, is that his harshest critics would say he's unfit to be prime minister mm. at any time, even in the most tranquil times. But he's certainly not a prime minister for these times. And his whole way of operating as well as thinking cuts against the grain of what is needed. But I, do, I still do think that the 2020s can be rescued somehow in terms of shared achievement, as well as pessimism breaking. It's a phrase that um, I forget which of them is an, is an American economic historian in all those great debates about productivity. He talked about how what, one of the great pluses of the post-war years in the United States, and you can read across this too, to the economic miracle in Europe, though we didn't quite have an economic miracle here, you can, it does apply, is that sustaining full employment after the war, not going back to the 30s, was a huge and important pessimism breaker. Mm. And my cluster of five, I think, could be a pessimism breaker. Other people would want to add some, take some away. Mm. But if we can get a, a, an approach to politics now in the rising generation, that sees it in that way, rather than recrimination as usual. Mm. It could happen. And also, the last bit of the book, I think I say this, we do have sovereignty over this. How we conduct ourselves in terms of producing a duty of care is sovereign to us. It's a question of spirit. We can't blame Brussels if it doesn't work. We can't blame the IMF. It's entirely down to us whether we do this and make it work or not. So... Every day, like all, like everybody else, I think I have, you have, I have emotions and attitudes and aspirations and fears fighting over my breast with predominance. But I would stick by those five as together a way of producing a big pessimism breaker that would be to the benefit of all. Yeah. Well, also, if I can be really honest, you know, now I'm in my seventies. If I can't have a last sodding blast on the trumpet, when can I have it? <laughs> so tell us about um i mean uh, about half the book's taken up with the, with the story of the um post-war consensus and, and particularly you've got the role of the original beverage as you get to your new beverage um but w- one thing i thought reading a really eloquent summary of all of that is just how kind of contingent that original consensus was so obviously big parts of it were contested with the Tories voting against big parts of the NHS and, and, and all the rest of it. And Nye Bevin being a very kind of, you know, tribal politician. Uh, like, so it often takes fights to achieve a consensus. But then more than that, you have two chance developments on the Tory side, which were um, required to lock it in. One, the acceptance, almost accidental acceptance of this thing, the Industrial Charter, 
and the other one this rejection of the of the robot scheme yes. both things that could have gone the other way and you know it's a rather trenchant character like Anthony Eden threatening to resign makes a difference on the robot scheme so it's not that the consensual characters whether Eden or Bevan uh you know there might be divisive characters but they might still contribute to this consensus so what we want is not a sort of thought for the day type of pitch like wouldn't it be nice if everyone worked together when we look back it's it's much messier than that but then you do end up with a with with a consensus that bits of which at least go all the way through Thatcher and Blair and and beyond. They had a great advantage that post-war generations they worked together in the coalition in the war they knew each other for example, I forget who said it now, some witty journo, that the only thing that had been dropped in Anthony Eden's foreign policy when only Bevin took over was his eight, the H's. And there was this big consensus, which is very rarely featured in the wider consensus debate on foreign defence and intelligence stuff. Um, but they had this great advantage, though Bevin was an exception. He'd not been in the coalition. He'd been a thorn in the side of coalition ministers very vituperative, but most of them had worked together and rather enjoyed each other's company and rather relished each other's characteristics. So they couldn't, they couldn't and didn't parody each other to the point where politicians these days normally do. So Hitler had detribalized us to a very, very high, considerable extent over five and a half, six years. So that was a huge advantage, which isn't there now. Um, and also the language of shared deprivations coming out of the war, and the fairnesses that went with that, as well as the deprivations for those who've been more comfortably off in the interwar years. That had a kind of benign hangover for quite a long time. It also gave the state quite a number of very good people who could do inquiries or run things like Oliver Franks and Edwin Plowden. They'd gone in as the temporaries and had really shone in Whitehall. Mm. And there was a kind of territorial army, reserve army, reserve group of these people that could do good things for you, could do the inquiries. And so it was a very it was a very fortunate concatenation of circumstances. But as you say, it could easily have gone wrong if Rand Butler had, if Churchill had read the Industrial Charter <laughs> <laughs> when Rand Butler first produced it and said, I don't believe in a word of this. Or if Butler had persuaded the cabinet to float the currency, partially floated in 52, that would have wrecked any kind of possible consensus with Labour on, because uh, we would have fallen out big time, not just over nationalisation policy, but over that. So it, it was a close run thing, the post-war consensus. And does that make certain... you more optimistic for now, that if you've got, you know, kind of people who could have gone the other way and are quite divisive characters in some moods, like, you know, Churchill uh, and, and Bevan, who could still be part of creating a consensus, does that mean that Boris Johnson could be part of creating a consensus or are you beyond that hope with him now? Well, he had that great moment. It was after he came out of hospital when he had his brush with death. And Keir Starmer, as the new Labour leader, said all the right things about consensus. And for a few weeks, he did work with the devolved authorities, but then they went, the whole the Johnson way of doing things went back onto automatic pilot. The hacks were briefed about the roadmap. So Mrs Sturgeon read read it for the first time, what Johnson was going to propose in the Sunday Times, I think. Um, and he just went back onto his old mode of operating instead of a consensual one, mm. and it never recovered. And then the Cummings business came in very quickly after that. 
Mm. His judgment of the Cummings thing really bit hard into people's skepticism about him and produced, understandably, not just a political furore, but this deep set belief, which has been reinforced by party, the party's question now, currently, that it's one law for you and one law for the rest of us, which triggered all sorts of sense of grievance and unfairness. Again, wider, with some justification. I mean, I'm not criticizing people for feeling that. So as Nicholas Soames said, he won't want to go back to being a scrappy party politician now he's becoming, rather than being a national leader. But he did. And the way he conducted himself at PMQs pretty well consistently since then has been that. Mm. It really has. It's been very demeaning of him. And it's not rising to the level of the crisis that we've been facing. It's just nowhere near. So with him there, it's very difficult to see. Because who knows how long he'll go and the circumstances in which he'll leave. But there, there's perhaps, a, it's not an iron law of politics, Tom, but it's a non-ferrous metal law is that very often a successor prime minister, even if it's of the same party, wants to put out signals that they're anybody but the one that they've been replaced, you see. John Major did that very carefully on the doorstep of number 10, just after he'd gone to see the Queen to accept her commission to form an administration. And he said, I want a society at ease with itself. Well, that was a signal, a maru that went straight up above Downing Street that we may be conservatives, we may be the same group of people who were in the cabinet before, but it isn't the same government. And that's also when many of Margaret Thatcher's greatest supporters at the top end of the Conservative Party had all their doubts about him reinforced. Mm. But that was a big signal. It didn't do major much good with his own people and it was very difficult for him. And after Black Wednesday, he never recovered really. But a prime minister who wanted to show he or she wanted to show that they were anybody but Boris, mm. could do it very easily. And we'd all sigh with relief. I, I remember, um, I think it was Chris Patton said to Andy Marr, who was then the budget column of the Economist of the Economist, about John Major's first cabinet meeting, when he said, well, who would have thought it? You know, and they must have all thought, who would indeed? I think it was Chris Patton who came out and said to Andy Marr, we felt we were like the prisoners in Beethoven's Fidelio, coming out of the dungeons into the sunshine, blinking and singing of freedom. <laughs> and I remember thinking, you pathetic bastards, why didn't you stand up to <laughs> <laughs> So there could be a Fidelio moment. If you but, put um, all together, um, like the fact that, you know, Johnson probably will go, someone will come in and maybe want to give a nod and a wink that they understand that they need to play by the rules as Prime Minister. If he, if ultimately he's broken, as looks quite likely by not playing by ordinary rules, someone could make a virtue in some sort of way about uh, rule-bound rule governance. And then um, when you look at the, again, the, the last five years, having to negotiate this kind of Brexit thing that busts the party system, busts uh, like all kinds of covenants between the electors and the elected. Um, and then uh, COVID, the government having to do extraordinary things. And yet, you know, the constitution, um, like from one point of view has done quite well in that it's survived and it's still kind of there. And if someone who's not Boris Johnson comes in, but um, you did say that he was setting you onto a track to think we might need to write some things down, if not write everything down. So I wondered, um, maybe it all depends on Scotland, but I just wondered where would you start with that and how would you um, start? 
Well, I think I would start with the, where the cabinet secretaries were starting with putting certain of these jobs, these watchdog jobs, regulators of the cabinet of, of the constitution jobs on a statutory basis so they can't be dispensed with. Mm. I've always been incrementalist about this. The constitution has held because it's held because it is, it has a certain give in it, suppleness, not give in terms of giving, you know, giving way to Johnson. And also that in human terms, because we're still shockable. The Shropshire North result shows amongst other things that we're still shockable as a people. That we won't just shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's the way they are. Mm. People were very, very cross about all of that. Mm. And it's the personal disdain of Johnson for the rules not applying to him that's bitten in. It really has. So I think in that sense, the human side of the constitution has worked. You, you're quite right. A new prime minister could signal it just in those remarks on the step, on the doorsteps of number 10. That we, we, we're, and particularly as, if as is likely, if he goes this year, I think it will be because of that bit of the ministerial code, which doesn't talk about prime ministers, it talks about other ministers who've shown to, shown to have knowingly lied to the House of Commons. Yeah. They have to offer their resignation to the prime minister. I mean, it's, it's not statutory that, it's not a legal requirement. Yeah. But if the, if the traps that Keir Starmer's laid in his loyally way by getting Johnson to make certain assertions in the chamber of the House of Commons, usually at PMQs, but not entirely, about certain things, if that is shown up later, that he palpably knew that that wasn't the truth, that's, that's, the way the, that's where his greatest weakness lies. And that's where this, this unwritten constitution, although it is written in the ministerial code in a particular way, um, even though it's it's not legal, that's the bit that will be his undoing. Though mm. so him being him, the fear is that he won't accept that. That even he won't be Sidney Carton on the scaffold in the Tale of Two Cities and say this is a far far better thing I do now than I've ever done before, and go with us to see the Queen with as much dignity as he can muster. <laughs> the fear is because it's him he'll defy it. Mm. Now that of itself is worrying. So do you see a Trumpian parallel, Peter? Uh, you know, parallel with the way Donald Trump acted on his way out of office? I think it depends in that extraordinary scrambled mess that is Boris Johnson's, Johnson's mind. I have no insight into it at all, apart from what we all get from shared conversations and so on and reading things. Above all, he's obsessed with how history is going to remember him. Mm. Mm. Maybe Above that's... all, I think that's probably the one consistent thing in him. So that could, that could be a saving saving grace. It could be the saving grace for all of us because history will not rec not look upon him kindly if he if he sits it out when he's when he's been shown to lie to Parliament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, also, um, the Queen wouldn't get on the phone and say do the decent thing, but she is a presence without doing anything. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. I always thought. Yes. Not just in terms of being a focus of loyalty for all the Crown services, but just because she hasn't put a foot wrong since February 52 constitutionally. Not one bit of her court shoe has ever crossed the line into the wrong place since 52. Mm. That's breathtaking. Yeah. That's yeah. breathtaking. And just imagine Johnson having to face going to her to explain why he's not going to resign, even though... It now does appear that he's, he was he did lie to Parliament. Can you imagine what it would be like for him to have to go and look at the, the, the raised eyebrow, mm. the famous raised eyebrow and head tilted back? That should be enough, shouldn't it? 
I don't know. <laughs> if it's a good <laughs> in the end, that's a good a good note, I think, on which to, to end. Huge thanks then to Peter Hennessy for giving us his unique insights on how the British Constitution is bearing up under Boris Johnson. You can read the essay I based on our conversation in the current March issue of Prospect, which is out now. And I should add that Peter's book, A Duty of Care, is out imminently too with Alan Lane. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.